Okay. Good morning. Good morning. Well, we uh, we are going to uh, to finish Judges today. I will say uh, we've been in Judges for some time now, and uh, next week we'll start a four part series, uh, which we typically do some kind of small series for Christmas. Um, and hopefully you'll join us for Christmas Eve service up at Mount Vernon with the church we planted last year. It'll be an awesome time to gather in the Lincoln Theater, and um, just uh, it'll be awesome for me because I don't have to do anything but show up. So I'm really excited for myself. But um, and in January we'll start Corinthians. So we'll be going through First Corinthians, which is a book that is about a really messed up church, um, and it deals with tons of controversial issues, and it's going to be very enjoyable, um, I hope, so we'll see. But let me begin by saying, judges, uh, I've learned very quickly and the hard way that there's a reason why pastors don't typically preach judges. Um, It is hard. It is a hard book to understand. It's a difficult book to preach. As you saw last week, that um, it's a book that is full of disturbing stories of disturbing people doing disturbing things, and that's the Christians in the book, um, supposedly. So, but by grace, uh, this is the final sermon in our uh, year-long study of this disturbing book. And so we've been looking at the last five chapters, 17 through 21, and they are one kind of piece that goes together as this two-volume appendix on the end of the book of Judges. And the writer put it there intentionally to kind of tell a story for us to understand certain truths, but many people mistakenly read these last five chapters, um, I think chronologically, and therefore they, they view them as kind of this final statement, this big crescendo of, well, this is how unfaithful people are, and they don't have a king, and that's it. Um, and it just kind of ends, if you read it that way, with this kind of this defeatist feel of, man, men are really unfaithful. And that is a large part of the book, but I actually believe um, it's different than that, or we get a different perspective as we study it. But the final chapters of this book actually take place very early in the book of Judges, and it's the only way a lot of things make sense in it. And so these two volumes are really a prequel to the whole story, and what it tries to do is to um, explain how one of the darkest periods in Israel's history came about. This is potentially one of the darkest books in the Bible. And you have God's chosen people um, going from living like Israelites, worshiping God, to uh, really sinning and living like Canaanites. And we see that today where really one tribe of Israel becomes Canaanite, and they are treated as Canaanites whom God said you must destroy. And you look at this book, or you should, and I think anyone that's come in like partway through the series and like, who preaches judges? Seriously? We're not like, you know, the five steps to be a better prayer warrior or something like that? Like judges? That just seems like heavy. And I think for us, we look at it, we go, how can a several thousand year old book have any kind of impact on our life, you know, as we read this? It seems so distant uh, from what is important for me today. But I think that If nothing else, it provides a pretty strong warning. And the warning is very simple, and it's the same warning that we see really in the Garden of Eden, which is um, warning us against trying to find happiness and satisfaction in something other than God. And I mean ultimate satisfaction. 
I mean, ultimate contentment, where you're like, this will make me happier, and that is a thing that leads you away from God. And it really describes what happens when an individual tries to build a life or a family or even a community or a culture apart from God. Now, I think the scary thing for me just as a dad is that what we see in the book of Judges, it took only one generation for people to go from deeply faithful to deeply unfaithful. One generation. 30, 40 years. In the first appendix, what we saw is in in chapters uh, 17 and 18, basically how these people and and families and, and communities kind of fall into the cycle of sin. And what we saw is that they began with a generation of unfaithful parents. And again, as a parent, that's sobering to me. And I began to think about this all week. Um, and I really mean that when I say that. Like, I sit on this and then beat myself up and then come and beat you up. And it's great, right? So anything I say, they go, oh, wow, that's like, just imagine me, you know, getting hit first. Um, but here's something I just want to ask you parents. And I ask myself this already, so I'm, you know, already dealt with it. But for especially you who are older parents. Um, and by older parents, I mean you have kids that may be at our house. But even those who uh, maybe aren't parents at all, and you go, well, I don't want any kids. Oh, I was just your friends. Um, or the families that, that you um, have. Do your kids or your friends or your family know about your present faith in Jesus? About your living faith in Jesus? And I'm not talking about the fact that you attend church. Or the fact that you um, own a Bible. Or the fact that you go to BSF for the last 10 years. Okay, it's Do they really hear you and, and does your... Faith in Christ just overflow into your life so that when you're dealing with life, they just see you loving Jesus. Is that what they see? Like when you hit suffering in your life, does Jesus come into the conversation as you are basically preaching to your family and friends about like, this is how I'm dealing with this? Or when prosperity comes into your life and you go, you know what, I'm just just thanking Jesus because I really don't deserve this. Is Jesus coming into that conversation or the only things you're speaking to your family, your friends, even your kids is just good advice, good wisdom? Because what they really need and what we see in here is to see your love for Jesus, to hear about your love for Jesus, to know of your love for Jesus. That's what they need. And we see a generation of people that kind of just, I think in a very real way, stop talking about God. They were even going through the motions of religion, and that wasn't enough. They just stopped talking about God. And Jesus became this thing that, well, I had faith some time ago. I was really moved by that and impressed by that, because the last thing I want my kids, honestly, growing up, and as I engage with them as an adult, is like, yeah, you know, Dad's really wise. That's fantastic. I want them to like listen to some of my wisdom, because I think I should have listened to some of my dad's wisdom more. But I want them to know that I love Jesus. And I want them to know that Jesus is where and reason why I love. And that Jesus is where I place my faith. And Jesus is where I place my hope. Now, that was the first appendix. How do people fall into a cycle of sin? It begins by basically forgetting God and beginning to worship in ways that might even look spiritual but aren't. But the second appendix, chapters 19 through 21, um, 
doesn't give us a picture of unfaithfulness as it does give us a picture of God's faithfulness. Now, granted, the story starts pretty dark in 19. That was last week. It's a very dark story, very um, disturbing story. But it ends here with what I think is a picture of God's faithfulness and really telling and reminding the people who would read Judges how the cycle of sin is going to be broken. Not just how you fall into it, but how you're actually going to get out of it. So, I'm going to summarize as we go through large sections of the text, because it's a lot, two chapters. I'm not going to read every verse. And let me pray before I do so I don't screw it up, because what, what, what this is going to look like is, it's just going to look so messy. If you read 20 to 21 straight through, you'd be like, this just seems crazy. I know. Okay? So I'm going to try and connect it all, but I'm going to make it even more complicated before I connect it all. So you really got to pay attention. I mean, like, like you know, second period, you've gotten through first period, now second period is take notes, get attention, right? Let me pray, ask God to do a miracle and help you understand and help me communicate it clearly, right? Father God, I come before you. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you'll fill me. You'll move me out of the way so that you might speak your words of conviction or comfort, whatever we need. Let your word show us your faithfulness. Let us see your faithfulness to us as we see even our own unfaithfulness. Let us see how gracious you are to save us despite our sin. It's in the name of Jesus, Jesus we pray. Amen. So Leviticus 19 ends with, if you don't forget, this terrible story, and the Levite slices up his wife, and basically every tribe receives a piece of the body from Levitical UPS, and they have this package sitting there going, oh my gosh, what has happened? That's how we start. Okay, Verse 1 says, all the people of Israel in response to this came out. So that's all the tribes. If you have all the tribes laid out, They're all going to come out from their tribes and gather. From Dan to Bathsheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Well, parenthetical, now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? So, as many tragedies often do in nations, this one unites them. Kind of reminds you maybe at the end of Braveheart, right? His body is cut up, thrown across England. It unites Scotland. You have a war, and now Scotland is free. Same idea, right? Israel sees this horrible tragedy, doesn't fully understand what happened. So they says they gathered as one man. They assembled together, unified as one man before the Lord at Mizpah, a city that's located in the tribe or tribal area of Benjamin, which is pretty central to Israel. So you have nearly half a million men armed for battle, having traveled great distance, some of them, in order to find out about and confront sin in the family. Okay? They're united about dealing with the sin. And so these are the early days of Judges. One of the reasons why I see, you wouldn't see this at the end of Judges where the, the, the cultures are very, the tribes are very fractured. Early days, sin is a very serious problem, especially sin within the camp, if you will. It deals with it. They're very serious about it. And so most likely they're so serious about it because this generation remembers, because it's not very far removed from them, a little situation that happened after the Battle of Jericho. Now, 
we went through the book of Joshua, and so some of you may remember this. Probably a lot of you have heard about the Battle of Jericho, right? They attacked Jericho, one of the biggest cities, the first city as they come in across the Jordan, first city they basically encounter. They do the big march thing, blow the trumpets, and the walls fall down. Well, in defeating that city, God said, this city is devoted to me. Don't take anything from it. And he asked, had some very specific guidelines about what to do. And a guy named Achan decides to steal some idols that are in Jericho. So he takes them, hides them in the bottom of his tent, and then all of Israel goes to fight the next battle, which is a city called Ai. And they go, and God said, you just go where I tell you to go, and you'll be victorious. So they go, and they are totally decimated. And they go back, and they're crying, like, what is going on, God? And Joshua goes to the Lord and says, what is going on? You told us we'd be victorious wherever we went. And he says, they got sin in the camp. Someone took the idols that I said not to take. And so they have to deal with it, and they draw lots, and they basically find this guy who's within Israel named Achan. And Achan has, because of his sin, has resulted in the death of a bunch of Israelites because of that battle, and ultimately results in the death of his entire family. And so Israel knows all too well what happens when you bring sin in the camp. They're very familiar with it. It's not that far removed from them, so they are serious about dealing with it because they know what consequences for that. Now, what we see, I think, in a picture of this is that sin sin is a communal issue. Like a lot of you and even myself, we we sin and we think it's just this private thing that we do. It's not going to affect anybody else. One of the things we do as, uh, in the elder candidacy stage, because we have a pretty thorough process for elder candidates, is one of the things they do in the study that we go through is they identify every relationship that will be impacted by their sin or their failure if they were to fall morally in some way. And obviously, once you are an individual, it feels like less, but you still have a family, but then you get married, then you have maybe kids, then you have a job, then you have brothers and sisters and brother-in-laws, sister-in-laws, and then you become part of a church and all these people like, you have this map of like, yeah, that's serious. Your sin isn't just individual. Your failure isn't just yours. And so they understand this. Like someone sins, this affects all of us in one way or another. And there's a, there's a loving, you know, uh, a participation, if you will, involved in making sure and stirring one another on towards good works for our own health, for yours and for ours. Now, Everyone shows up at this place except Benjamin. And he even says, a little parenthetical, but Benjamin heard. So it's not like Benjamin doesn't know what's going on. It's a city in their own tribal area. All these people are gathered there, and they refuse to show up. And when Israel comes together, they say, tell us what happened. How did this evil happen? Why are we getting these packages of body parts? What happened? So the Levite, the husband of this concubine, steps up and recounts the story. So you can read this as you read down in Genesis, or Judges 20. And so he recounts the story. I won't recount it for you. The thing he left out conveniently was he like, yeah, these guys were so evil, we showed up, and the leaders of Gibeah did this, whatever. He conveniently leaves out all the parts about his own culpability in it. We're like, yeah, well, I did shove her out the door, and I didn't stand up for her, and I was pretty silent through the whole thing, right? He is not a good guy. But that doesn't excuse the sin that occurred. And essentially, 
Israel hears this horrible thing, one-sided, but true. Here's this horrible situation, and they basically go, that's it. We're not going home until we deal with this. So all 400,000 of us are going nowhere until we deal with this horrible sin that Gibeah has done. So what they do is they start, they sit, take a force, a little like you know, convoy, and they send it all around Benjamin. And they basically go, give us the guys. We're going to give you opportunity to repent. And so verse 12 says, The tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of the brothers, the people of Israel. The people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. Now that is messed up. Okay? Any way you look at it. They're not saying, hey Benjamin, you're all going to get spanked. They're simply saying, take the guys in all of your tribe in this one city and these few leaders that did this, let us have them so they can be justly punished. And anyone would say, you would think, these guys deserve to be justly punished. This is Benjamin's opportunity to repent. Benjamin's opportunity to basically give up these men, let justice be served. But we see that the depravity that began with an individual and then went to a home and then to a city now has infected a whole tribe. And all of Benjamin rejects Israel's appeal for justice and they basically refuse to repent. They refuse to turn from their sin. And in refusing to repent, they're choosing much more than just to defend these sinful guys and really defend and maybe minimize their sin. They are declaring war against God. Did you know that really what a lack of repentance is? It's declaring war against God and in this case declaring war against God's people. And it's Benjamin boldly declaring like, we are not God's people. God, you are not my king. I don't care, Christian brothers, what you say. I'm running the show. I'm making my own right. You guys are all wrong. And I'll tell you something. God gives us community for a purpose. And if 99% of your community is telling you what you're doing is stupid, wrong, you need to turn, you might want to listen. But God does speak through those people. Benjamin refuses and they basically become full-on, we are Canaanites. We are choosing to be Canaanites. We are volitionally, willfully going, God, I don't care what you say, we are doing our own thing. And then they gather at Gibeah. That's the staging ground for their army. The city where this horrible thing took place, they are in full support of Gibeah. And they gather 20, was it 26,000 men, and 700 like special forces left-handed dudes, right? Because we learned very beginning of Judges, the Benjamites have like these left-handed special forces dudes that can take out like 25 guys with an arrow or something, right? They're just like studs. So you got this force gathering. They're ready to go to war to defend these worthless dudes. So Israel, what do they got? They got 400,000 people. Like, yeah, that's like 15 to 1 odds. Bring it, right? 
Well, they're not really arrogant. What do they do? Well, unlike we see in the rest of Judges, remember, this stuff takes place at the beginning of Judges, they don't just follow what would be obvious and, quote, right in their own eyes. They go and ask God. They're not overconfident yet. But that comes throughout Judges. That's the whole problem with Judges. They're always doing what's right in their own eyes. And in the beginning of Judges, and you see it less and less and less all the way through Samson, not asking God, what should we do? Even when it seems so obvious, like we're 400,000 people, this is, we're supposed to judge these guys. They pray to God, and they ask Him, should we go to battle? They want to be certain, right, that we're going we're gonna to fight a civil war against our own people. We're going to go slaughter our own brothers. Are you sure you want us to do this? And God says, yes. And He says, I want Judah to lead it, who will be the future, the tribe of the future King David and the tribe of Jesus. And at God's command, their huge force steps onto the battlefield and they begin to attack and they get their tails kicked. And you can read that as you read from 18 to 25. They lose the first battle. In fact, they lose 22,000 people. It doesn't say how many Benjamites died, so the implication is very few. You're like, what? How does that happen, right? We got 400,000 people. 15 to 1. One guy took out like 15 guys? And then we prayed. I mean, God said, go. That's all he said. He said, go. And so they are not despairing, but they're a little concerned. Maybe this is just a fluke, so they start to encourage one another. And what do they do? They go ask God again. And they pray, and they go, okay, God, you really want us to go up against Benjamin? Just making sure, because last time we got, you know, snarf kicked out of us, so you really want us to do this? And he says, yes, go up against Benjamin. All right, they get all excited. They go again. All these thousands of people go against what seems to be a much smaller force, and they get slaughtered again. 18,000 people. So now 40,000 people have been killed, and you're like, maybe two Benjamites or something. And you and I and them are like, what is going on? Like, we are doing what's right. Now think about that, right? It's not like they're just going and picking a fight. They're doing what is clear. They're punishing what is clearly sin in Israel. And they asked God twice whether they should go. So we all go like, what is the deal? Why is Israel being defeated? Why is Israel weak even when doing what is right? Well, first and foremost, Israel is failing in their battle because remember, Israel is fighting what amounts to Canaanites. And every time that Joshua went against Canaanites in the book of Joshua, God fought. In fact, in some battles, God killed more people than Israel did with the sword. Like they'd be sitting there like fighting, and they'd be like a hailstone, and they'd go, boom, they're like, sweet, and they'd just go. Right? So God was the one fighting. Well, God's not fighting for them here. He's just sending them. They're like, well, why isn't God fighting for them? Well, He's not fighting them for them yet because Israel still has their own sin to deal with. See, these aren't the clean people judging the dirty people. These are sinners who, as representing representatives of God, are judging sinners. And the thing that we 
when, when we have the opportunity, and I say opportunity, not like an exciting one, like, but it comes before you, and it's your responsibility to speak truth, to admonish, to discipline, to say hard words, however you, you want to say it. We have to remember that before we speak a, a single word, we need to be in right relationship with God. Like anytime you're going to speak truth, anytime you see someone just you know, messed up, you, and, and you feel like I need to tell this person that they, that they are dishonoring God, I need to speak some truth to them, you need to begin with a humble recognition and confession of your own depravity. Like what is, Jesus talks about judging all the time. And there's one time he talked about judging, judging where he says basically, you know, remove the log right, out of your own eye before you try to pick the speck out of someone else's eye. But he doesn't say, remove the log and don't go judge. He says, remove a log so that you can judge and you can see clearly and see rightly. And so Israel needs to deal with their own sin because just being on the right side with God isn't enough. Just being right, if you're not right in relationship with God, is not enough. Like, you can fight for God, you can stand for His truth, you can look holier and moral and all these things, but if you are not being judged by the Lord Himself, if you're going around a judging without submitting yourself to the Lord you know, in His judgment, then you are going to be hypocritical, and as we see here, you're going to be weak. You're not going to be successful. What's successful? You lovingly speak the truth, and that person turns from the sin towards Jesus. Now, how does one get right with God? Well, the Bible says that you need forgiveness. And that there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. You get right with God to, by basically ensuring that your sins are atoned for. So here's what they do. Verse 26. Before the third battle, because there's a third one, all the people of Israel, the whole army, so not even just the leaders, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept, and they sat there before the Lord. What did they do? They fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out, Lord, once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. He didn't say that the first two times. So they go to the Lord before they go to battle, and this time they do something different. And Phineas is there. And this is where you need to know your Bible. This is so important to know the Old Testament, okay? Names are dropped in all the time, and we need to understand they are. Numbers 25 is where you hear about a guy named Phineas. Phineas was a priest to the Lord, and he is the high priest at this point ministering here when they come there. And Phineas became uh, very famous in Israel and in the eyes of God for being jealous for God. For being jealous for the pure worship and devotion to God. And so back in Numbers 25, Israel, like, they've been going after false gods since the beginning. And so back in Numbers 25, when Moses is around, before they ever get into this place where the promised land is, Israel goes after the gods of Moab and starts sleeping around, literally, with the Moabite and the Midianite women. And after a battle... They come before Moses 
a Israelite and a Moabite or Midianite woman. And Phineas is the only one who stands up and acts by taking a spear and poof, killing them both. And we look at that and go, oh my gosh, that's, just, that's, that's harsh. Now remember, talking about bringing sin into the camp and the purity of worship and, and God's commitment to His holiness and the holiness of His people. And so God shows up and says, let me tell you what I think about what Phineas just did. Here's what God says in Numbers 25, verse 11. He says, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, as God speaking, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So Phineas, it's all about peacemaking. He was the guy that came and killed the Israelite and his pagan you know, woman that he was sleeping with and said, God is about faithfulness. And God said, that's right, you're jealous for me. And so Phineas is the guy that before this third battle leads them, peacemaking, covenant-keeping, jealous for God, Phineas, in making sacrifices to God. In basically getting themselves, if you will, through the mediation of a sacrifice, a substitute is put down, burned for them, in their place, for their sins, to restore them to right relationship with God. It was through the sacrifice that they are made suddenly strong, and God actually says, now I'll fight for you. Because they go to battle a third time, and this time they're completely victorious. And it's pretty much a repeat of the battle, almost identical to how they battled Ai, the city that they were once defeated back with Joshua and Achan. Now, the sacrifice didn't make them better fighters. It made them right with God, and now God stepped in to fight for them. And what do we see in verse 35? It says, And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. The Lord is the one who fought. The Lord is the one who exacted justice. The Lord is the one who defeated his enemies in the same way he defeated Canaan and the Canaanite people. And so the sacrifice allowed them or ensured that they were now atoned people. They were pure people right before God. And so God says, I will fight for my repentant people. And God's judgment on Benjamin is is devastating. It is devastating. And in this judgment, you see exactly what God thought about that sin that was committed in Leviticus 19. What began as 2,700 men. Now, that doesn't include the people that are in the cities all throughout Benjamin. What began as 2,700 men, they decimate the entire tribe down to 600 people. That means that they killed women, children, other men who were not fighting, all of them. And we look at that and go, oh my God. And we had to deal with this in Joshua. But when you remember that the Benjamites are now Canaanite people in the eyes of God. And what you're talking about is like, well, how do we approach sin? Do we just kind of manage sin? Do we just kind of like 
minimize sin, just kind of make sure it's okay, or do we just annihilate sin in our lives? Is it to be destroyed in our lives? And so it's utterly destroyed, and you have 600 men left, and as they're cutting them down to 600, it literally says that they go through the wilderness and they're cutting them down. And that word actually is translated gleaned. And they're gleaning Benjamin, right? They're stripping all of life and dignity away from Benjamin. And the thing about that word is that the only other place that it's used in the book of Judges is back in Leviticus 19, in describing the same thing that those men do to that woman, that she is gleaned. She's stripped of all life and all dignity. And so what you see is God is a powerful and a just avenger. And he exacts and has Benjamin experienced the same injustice they inflicted. Now, you get into 21, and Israel's now like, all right, we've got to decimate a tribe. What are we going to do? Because the only thing that's left is 600 men, and left alone in one generation, all of Benjamin will be gone. They'll lose a tribe. So now they're like, what do we do? Verse 1 says, the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah. So they're remembering prior to the battle, when they'd gathered at Mizpah, they had made this commitment that no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. You think, why did they make that commitment? Because they knew or trusted, had faith that they were going to be victorious and they're only going to have a few men left over and everyone else is going to be wiped out. And the people came to Bethel and they sat there till evening before the Lord and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which which of all the tribes did not come up to the assembly of the Lord? For they had taken an oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. Okay? So, before the battle, obviously, they made this vow, and now they have 600 men, and they have no wives to give them, because they made this vow. So, like, what are we going to do? Otherwise, if we do nothing, Benjamin will be decimated forever. And so, you see them, even in how they're treating the Benjamites, they're treating them like Canaanites because one of the things God had commanded was not to intermarry with the Canaanites. Now they're saying, we're not going to intermarry with them. Now, they are faithful not to intermarry, but they also are broken. They're, they're weeping bitterly over what sin has done to their brother Benjamin. What sin has done, not what they have done, But what sin has done, because Benjamin has received the just judgment that sin deserved from a God who is good. If God did not judge sin, he would not be good. He would not be just. But he is. But he's also compassionate. And God does not take joy in judgment, and neither should we. And what you see is compassion is always at the heart of admonishment. Compassion is always at the heart of discipline, especially when you're dealing with the sins of a brother. And so they're compassionate, they're broken over what has happened, though they don't regret having judged. And Israel cries and goes, what are we going to do? And then verse 4 pops in, and it's like they made an altar, and they burnt sacrifices and offered peace offerings. And you're like, that seems odd. They've already atoned for their sins, right? And then they followed God and God blessed them. And the sacrifice in the altar isn't for them. 
was for Benjamin. And they make an altar, and you see a couple verses later, they offer peace to Benjamin. And they ultimately act as a mediator, and the sacrifice atones for the sins of Benjamin, and they are fully restored. And they are made right with God. Though they have been judged severely, they are have hope now for restoration. An animal has substituted for their sin, taken the penalty that they deserved, and now they can live, hopefully, with this plan they have. The other oath they had made, they made two oaths, was that anyone that doesn't gather at Mizpah, we're going to kill them. So when they came to Mizpah before the battle, they said, okay, once we wipe these guys out, no one gives their daughters to them. Right. And if no one, whoever doesn't come up here, we're going to kill. Okay. And so they start asking as they have to deal with this, okay, we've got Benjamin, how are we going to get wives to him? They start asking themselves, which one of the tribes didn't come up? What city didn't come up? And they name one. They say, ah, one city. Jabeth Gilead didn't come up to Mizpah. Now, this was the only city out of all of Israel, the only people that they identify have not come up. And them not coming up to fight with Israel is more than just unfortunate. And it's not out of ignorance. If you return to the story of Achan, right, back in Joshua, the guy from Jericho, and he stole those things, when they punished Achan, every single member of Israel participated. In fact, that was required by the law in Deuteronomy 17.7, I believe it is. It says, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and speaking about someone who's caught in this kind of perversion. And afterward, the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So judgment was something everyone was supposed to participate in. They had a phrase actually that said, everyone will have a stone, right? Everyone will throw a stone. And so Jabez Gilead was supposed to join them in throwing a stone. In other words... Silence and non-participation is not an option. There's a verse that came to mind that I think should frighten us a little bit. And Jesus is the one who said it. He said in Mark 8.38, Whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I don't want to be ashamed by Jesus, right? For him to be ashamed of me. And so you got to pick a team. There's only two teams to be on. And their refusal here to rise and stand with Israel meant that they were either ashamed to identify with God for whatever reason, or they willingly wanted to identify with the Canaanites. Either one is sinful. And so Israel proceeds to deal with them like Canaanites and ultimately solves two problems at the same time. They have to purge further the sin from Israel and they're going to hopefully restore Benjamin at the same time. So what do they do? It gets kind of weird. So the congregation sent, says in verse 10, 12,000 of the bravest men there to the city, and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jebeth-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones, and this is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. 
which would mean to vote to the Lord in destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jebeth Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by laying with him, and they brought with him to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. All right. Now, I know it seems like men just kind of making it up as they go, right? Oh, darn it, we made an oath. What do we do? Well, let's do this. They didn't come up. That's not what's happening, although it kind of looks like that. I actually think it's God demonstrating his faithfulness to what is an unfaithful but repentant people. Now, the fact is, I think Phineas is probably leading this endeavor. And why do I think that? Because in Numbers 31, the exact same battle is pretty much repeated. In Numbers 31, Phineas led a battle almost identical to this to purge the sin from Israel, led 12,000 men, same number doing it, and there were virgins, the only ones who were survived, who were taken. And so you see what's happening here. Phineas, the guy, we're making sure the people are devoted to God, purging the sin from our midst, that's an obstacle to that. And so they go in and they devote this city to destruction. And the Benjamites and Israel had a substitute who stood in their place, took their death that they deserved as a sacrifice for their sins. This city became the sacrifice. This city didn't have a substitute. This city basically was punished rightly and justly as we all should be or anyone who doesn't have a substitute for them. And the sacrifice not only satisfied God's justice, it actually provided a future hope for Benjamin. And we see here, they get 400 virgins, and what do they do? They give them to the Benjamite men. Well, math scholars, what's wrong? you got 200 men still left. And so they're like, uh-oh, what do we do? The last part is really weird. And I know you read it and you go, oh, these guys are just sinful. Oh, this is terrible. What are they doing? Kidnapping women? Okay. Stick with me. And the picture of God's faithfulness, and the picture of His restoration, the picture of God being faithful to an unfaithful people. Here's their plan to deal with the 200 extra they need. They said, all right, Here's what we'll do. He said, Behold, there is a yearly feast at the Lord of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lemedah. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, so these 200 guys, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man and his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. Now, come on, you're like, are you serious? Right? This is, these guys have got to be making this up. Well, think about it for a second, okay? Let me just... Basically, they uh, instruct the Benjamite bachelors to go up to Shiloh, hide in the bushes, and apparently there's a feast to the Lord every year at Shiloh. And during this feast, there's this... Dance, right? Okay, so these women, the dance of the virgins, if you will, they come out and they do some kind of dance. And the word for dance that is used here is not the typical word used for dance. It's actually a word that's more often translated um, and, and related to the pains in childbirth. 
fruitfulness of the womb, right? So the dance they're doing as they, they come out is not like that, that new Gingham-style dance, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm culturally connected, right? Watching YouTube, okay, what's the dance that's new, right? It's not that. They're not out there like, I'm not going to even do it because it'll be on video, okay? But what it is is some kind of dance that ultimately is declaring their fruitfulness and their availability. They actually want to be caught. They want husbands. And so they're out there dancing. I don't know what it looked like, right? Use your imagination. But they're out there dancing and they're declaring themselves fruitful and available and husbands come in and go, boom! Now, verse 22 says that the fathers and brothers are going to be ticked. Right? Because Israel goes, okay, when the the dads and the brothers show up and they're angry, and you go, well, why would they be angry? Because they're being kidnapped? No! Because they're being kidnapped by Benjamites. That's why they'd be upset. But then they go, let us tell you the grace of this loophole. He says, here's what you tell them. Dads, you're not going to be held account for the oath you're breaking because you're not the one giving the daughters away. And, an extra bonus, we have a tribe that's going to be fully restored and their inheritance will be made guaranteed, if you will, by having families to bless and to grow in Benjamin again. So he's like, don't be angry. It's a grace. So we see that these last two chapters are not this kind of like period at the end of the story of just like, well, unfaithfulness, let's move on. I actually think it's a pretty bold exclamation point of God's faithfulness to save his children. And even children as evil as Benjamin. Even children that make some pretty grievous and heinous and and terrible decisions like Benjamin did. And I know as you read this story, it's it's pretty complicated and all these things going on and you're like, man, this, does God really work that way? And all that messed upness, because it just looks like a bunch of sinful men exploiting you know, spiritual sounding loopholes in order to kind of get around God's word and to kind of fulfill their oaths, make it look like they have. I mean, all this substituting of sacrifices and all this reading between the lines and going behind the oaths. I mean, all this accomplishing the mission through the sin, not around it, that just seems way too scandalous for God. But isn't the gospel pretty darn scandalous? I mean, think about it. You know that you have, that we have a just and holy God, and He, which if He's fair, like I love to tell my kids that, well, you're not fair. Let me tell you what fair is in the eyes of God, right? If He's really fair, He really ought to put all men to death for their sins. That is the right payment required of a God who is holy, good, and just. And I know we think like, well, that just seems like death seems like, I don't know. Well, think about when you sin against someone. Like if you sin against a friend, there's some consequences there. You sin against the police, there's maybe some greater consequences there. You sin against the President of the United States and try to shoot him, there's some greater consequences there, right? Okay, now we're talking about God. The infinite holy God. And the right Judgment for our sin is death. But, 
Like we know that. We're, that's true, right? But by grace, not out of obligation, not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, not because we suddenly decided to be clean. By grace, He chooses to save some and punish their sins by substituting a sacrifice. I mean, God made an oath just like these guys. And God declared from the beginning that men should die for their unfaithfulness. But then, He goes beyond the surface of the oath in this incredibly scandalous way in order to save men by dying for them himself. And he accomplished all of that to the sins of men, using the sins of the Romans and the sins of the Pharisees and the other Jews, even the sins of one of Jesus' friends, Judas. Scandalous and beautiful. See, men, apart from God, are trapped in this cycle of unfaithfulness which is an offense, and we will love and do love God more, I'm sorry, things more than God, and we love ourselves more than others. And we even try to sound spiritual doing it. But this is the reason why we are condemned to die and hopeless, unless someone takes our place. Unless someone takes our place, and it's not only someone to take my place to pay for all my unrighteousness, It's someone to take my place and live the righteous life that I am not capable of living and give it to me. Scandalous. But the only solution to what is our problem. See, the cycle of sin is not broken by trusting in what we can do for ourselves, but in trusting what Jesus has done for you. He is our substitute in death. He is our substitute in life and relief from weakness and guilt and hopelessness is not found in feeling or thinking or doing better, but in trusting the sacrifice more deeply. See, you saw Israel, right? Like Israel, the power to fight, the power to fight sin, the power to defeat that which we easily get enslaved by came through trusting in the sacrifice. And through Christ, through trusting Him, we are victorious over sin and Satan. And even death. And like Benjamin, right? What did they need? God, they were guilty. We saw that forgiveness and freedom and freedom from this guilt came through trusting the substitute that paid for their sins. And so through Christ, we are at peace with God. He makes peace for us. And like that remnant of Benjamin who's left there with 600 guys looking at each other going, what are we going to do? Hope for restoration came through trusting in the grace that was promised from the substitute. So no matter how unfaithful you've been, you turn to Christ and you receive new life. You turn to Christ and you receive a new identity. You turn to Christ and you receive a new hope and a new direction, a new power to walk in. In the end, if we learn nothing else, Judges teaches two things. One, we are jacked up. Don't distance Judges from yourself and go, yeah, Israel's really messed up. What we see in Judges is men are unfaithful. 
They cannot save themselves. They cannot rule themselves. They cannot trust themselves. And what, honestly, we often think is right is often wrong. And what we think is worship is often idolatry. And what we think is harmless compromise is often sin worthy of death. And we saw in Judges, the best of God's men are unfaithful. And the strongest of God's men are unfaithful. And Judges proves not only that we need actually a king to save us, we're going to need a king who's more than a man. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus. Because the second thing Judges teaches us is that God's faithfulness is bigger than all of our unfaithfulness. God's faithfulness is bigger than all of our unfaithfulness. And it doesn't matter how broken you are or how broken things get, God is bigger than all of that and able to, in some messed up, crazy, scandalous way, bring it about for His glory. And how I know that? The cross. So as you come to the Lord's table today, I want you to really think about what you're doing because the Bible says that when we come to the Lord's table, when we take the Lord's Supper, we have communion with Him. Are we called communion, right? We commune with Him. We have not only a fellowship with the King, you actually come to the table and there's, pause for a minute while you're up there and not just worry about delaying the person behind you. You have fellowship with the king at this table. It's mysterious and awesome. And you also participate, not just um, observe from a distance, you participate in the sacrifice for you again. It's not just this visible reminder of the gospel, but it is a feast on the sacrifice, and it is intended to do everything that happened in this story. It's intended to strengthen you, to keep fighting It's intended to remind you of the forgiveness and to cleanse you of all that guilt and that shame that you might be building up. God, that's done. That's buried. That's gone. And it's to remind you that God loves you. To assure you that there is a hope, no matter how dark it is, there is a hope in this life and especially beyond this life. So as you come to the table today, I pray that you will look at it differently. And that you'll begin to look at judges differently. And if nothing else, you remind yourself that God is still faithful. God is still faithful. God is still faithful, even if you aren't.